Well, good morning. It's always a blessing to be with you on this Memorial Day weekend, especially it's good to see uh, friends and family who are visiting, and we know that many of our members are with their friends and family kind of all over the country and even all over the world, and so on this day, we're just thankful. We're thankful for the gift of one another, we're thankful for the gift of community, and we're especially thankful for the gift of the community of the cross that Christ makes possible for us. As we get ready to open up scripture together, I'd like us to pray. Would you bow? God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this place and this space in our lives and in our week where we recenter our hearts on you and your story. And we ask that as we open up your word, that in that very same moment we are opening up our lives to be spoken to. Uh, to be addressed, to be invited, to be challenged, to be called. And God, you know what each one of us needs to hear from your text, from your words this morning, and we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us, saying exactly what it is we need to hear. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. So we continue this series that we're calling Living a Better Story, and it is our confession as a gathered community of faith, that we live in a world that is filled with all kinds of different stories that are trying to tell us who we are, what really matters, where we're going, how we know how we're doing, and and we could list all kinds of different stories, stories about victory and overcoming, stories about facing any obstacle and and facing any challenge and being able to to be people who not only survive those situations but but are able to push past those situations. We want to be people who are achieving. We want to be people who matter, who are making a difference. And every time we, we open our lives up to the world around us, we find people who are rushing to tell us, well, this is how you, you go after that kind of life. This is what it looks like. But we're, we're people of Scripture, we're people of God's Word, and we believe that of all the stories that tell us where we're going and what matters and who we're trying to be, that this is the story. God's Word tells us the story that's not only true, but is also coming true in our lives and in our world. And so we've, we've been thinking about, okay, what is the, the shape of that story, and how have we not only learned about it in church or as we open up the Bible, but how have we experienced the truth of that past, of God's story, into our present and into our future? Because as we open up God's Word, we find we're not just reading about things that used to happen a long time ago, we are encountering things that still happen. It all begins when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit decide together that they want to speak a world into existence. Not a world that they want to create so that they can control it, but a world that they want to share their self-giving love with. We get the sense that in the Trinity, in the Godhead, with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, there is mutuality. There's, There's no one forcing their way on the others, but they choose to work together, to live together, to live for one another, and they decide they want to share that way of life with an entire universe. Most specifically, they want to share that that way of life, that kind of relationship-driven life. They, They want to share that with a man and a woman named Adam and Eve, 
and not just them, but all of their descendants, that that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit want all of us to have lives that are defined by relationships that we, that we don't use to get our way, but, but the relationships that we give ourselves over to because we believe that the best way to experience life is through commitment, through keeping our word, through keeping our promises, through, through holding on to trust. That when we say things, we're trying our best to tell the truth about us and the world around us. And God is modeling that for Adam and Eve from the very beginning. There's this mutuality now that's extended, not just from God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, but now Adam and Eve get to participate in this, this beautiful community together. But in order for that to keep going on, they're going to have to choose time and time again to trust. They're going to have to choose time and time again to submit And it turns out that that's a lot more difficult for human beings than it is for God. And so what we find is that they are tempted. They're tempted to make a decision to reach for something more. They're living in this beautiful garden. They have everything. They have one another. They have a loving and trusting relationship with God. And they start to decide that it might be nice to have more, to have more ability to shape everything around them. Really, more ability to shape everything around them than anyone should have. And so while they are created from the beginning to bear the image of this God, this God who is defined by self-giving love, they decide there's some stuff that they want to take. There's a snake in the garden who tells them, if you want more, you can have more. It's, it's not going to, to kill you. You're not going to drop dead the moment that you, you're able to take a hold of what it is you want. See, they think that, that the best way for them to control their present and secure the future is for them to know everything. If they could just know everything, then they could prepare themselves for everything, and they could prepare themselves for what God might do, and, and they could strategize, and they could, they could really create the world as they see fit. And it's too great of of, of a temptation for them to resist. And so they betray God. God says, you can have everything you want except for don't go to this, this tree, this knowledge of good and evil. See, up to this point in the story, all they know is good. But that means they don't know some other things. And that temptation to know everything is just too great. And so they betray God. And, and this very first betrayal, it's like a bomb going off in the story. I mean, it, it changes everything in a moment, and it tears apart this relationship that they were created for. And, and we look at it, and we think, okay, well, maybe, maybe if they just say they're sorry, and then they try to rebuild things, then maybe we can just go back to the way things were. But it turns out it's not just Adam and Eve who betray relationships. It's not just them who see relationships, not just as something they want to give themselves over to, but, but relationships are something that are allowing them to take a hold of whatever it is they want. They're using their relationship. In many ways, they're trying to use God. They end up using and hurting each other. Generation after generation, they're 
Their sons have a disagreement, and only one of those sons survives the disagreement. And then there's all kinds of other names that come into the story of people who decide, no, 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 I've got to control my present, and I need to secure my future no matter what. And they end up hurting one another. They end up having these emotional and spiritual and physical explosions where they're just tearing each other apart because there's only so much time. There's only so much world to go around, and they've got to take a hold of everything they possibly can. And and the fire gets so far out of control that God decides to, to try to quench that, that fire with a flood. And even that doesn't work. And so God decides that there's got to be a way to restart the story, to, to try to recapture that original goodness and, and the beauty of that, that first beginning. And so he does that this time, not creating a brand new world, but by creating a new kind of people. He chooses the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Israelites, and he says to them, look, what, what everybody needs is a living example. And I'm going to describe to you that life so that you can be that living example. I'm going to give you a law. I'm the creator of life. I'm going to tell you the best way to live life. So just read it carefully and learn it by heart and live it out. And you will find that you're able to live lives that are all about relationships that you give yourself fully to. Instead of relationships out of convenience where you're just trying to use one another to get whatever it is you think you need in the present and the future. Because if you keep living that way, you're just going to tear yourself apart the way the whole world is, is tearing itself apart. So God... He sends all kinds of these, these amazing events into the life of the Israelites to, to set them free from the bondage of slavery that they're in. We call it the Exodus. He, he rescues them. He reclaims them. He redeems them. And he says, be the example to everyone. Just show them that it's possible. And they say they want to do that. And you get the sense that, that they really do believe when they say that they want to live that way, that they mean those words. But it turns out that this pattern of, of having selfish desires and, and choosing to use other people in our lives rather than restoring the image of God in them, that that, that temptation, that that pattern, it's just it's too hard for them to break. And so explosions keep happening. Bombs keep going off. And at times, it's the people of God get caught up in that destruction, but there are other times where as painful as it is for us to admit, the people of God are actually the cause of that destruction. They forget that they're supposed to be this alternative community in a world that's all looking out for itself. They're supposed to model a different way. They're supposed to be this living example. And really, they start to think that that really life is more of a contest than anything else, and there's winners and there's losers, and they don't, they don't want to lose the contest. They don't want to lose out. And so they're going to fight, and they're going to hurt, and they're going to take whatever it is that they think they need, and then they're going to ask for God's forgiveness and hope that makes it all okay, except for the pattern just continues and continues. And yet God has this this commitment, for a reason that I don't fully understand. God sees time and again that when he gives people the power to choose, before long they're going to choose wrong. And by wrong I mean they're going to choose themselves over somebody else. And yet God refuses to take back full control. He refuses 
He wants to partner with people who have the ability to choose. And he, he's convinced, even though it hasn't worked out, he's convinced that what people really need is a living example. Now, the law didn't work. He described it. They tried to live it out. And, and in a mixture of an unwillingness and an inability to live it out, it doesn't work. But God still thinks that there, there has to be this living example. So instead of sending a law, he decides to step into the story himself. And we call this moment of divine intervention Christ. It's the moment when God the Son becomes a part of our world and our lives. And at that point, it's not just God the Son, it is God the Savior. It is God the Christ, the anointed one who's going to show us what's possible. Now, we could say a lot of things about the story of Christ. In fact, if we were going to explore all of the things that we know are true about Christ and all of the ways that those truths should be intersecting with our lives on a daily basis, this church service would have to go on a lot longer than most of you would want to have to sit through. We, we could spend the rest of our lives talking about and exploring and studying exactly what it is that makes Jesus Christ so unique and so different. And I think if we're honest, that's exactly what we're trying to do. But we don't want to just study and think and reflect. We want to live. We want Christ's life to shape our lives in ways that are beyond just knowledge. We want somehow for Christ's life to become our own. Now, in order for that to take place, we have to be honest about the parts of Jesus' story, the parts of his life that we're most drawn to. And, and I'm pretty sure that if you're anything like me, that you find that the stories you like best are when God in Christ is in our world and he's doing amazing things that nobody else can do. I mean, who wouldn't want to walk on water? Who wouldn't want to be able to, if somebody came into our, our worship service and they were paralyzed, who wouldn't want to be able to just say offhandedly, you know what, uh, why don't you get up and take your mat and, and go home? There's story after story where Jesus is doing these things that are just so captivating to us. And we look at that and we think, well, I want to be like that. I want to do those things and those things are absolutely a part of Jesus' story. They're a part of who he is, and they're, they're all together reasons that we want to be like him. But I think there's other parts of Jesus' story that are just as important and just as vital. And if we're honest, we really don't like thinking about those very much. Because they make us uncomfortable, and they're not exciting, and in fact... They seem very difficult and not like, oh, that must be really hard to accomplish, but in, in a way that says, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I could make it if I made those same decisions. I, I'm not sure what, what would actually happen. Over and over, the Apostle Paul reflects on the, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and he keeps shining a spotlight on the parts of Jesus' life story that make people uncomfortable. The things that, that don't stand out to us as impressive, and yet at the same time, even though they're not the most impressive moments, they seem almost impossible because of how difficult it is 
for us to imagine anybody doing what Jesus does, and not just once, but over and over and over again. This, this God the Son, who becomes God the Christ, who steps into the story of our lives, he does that, not with the power to control, but by wanting all of us to get to see what is a life, a human life, that actually bears the full image of God, that recovers God's ideal, What's it actually built out of? What are the materials, the raw materials that we need to live that way? Now, if we turn Jesus into this impressive, overcoming person who's able to do anything he wants at any moment, you know, if we turn him into some kind of spiritual superhero, I think we we find ourselves focusing on parts of the story that we want to while neglecting these parts. So open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be reading together in verse 1. This doesn't sound like a spiritual superhero. Now, now Paul sets it up to say, this is the kind of motivation I want you to have. When you ask yourself, what what parts of Jesus' story do I want to take and, and, and make a part of my life story? He says, this is kind of where you need to ask yourself where you're starting. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, and agreeing with each other. I don't think Paul means agree with each other on every single thing. I think he means agree on this. Right? Agree on what matters most. Agree on who you're trying to be. Don't do anything. This is what we need to agree on. Don't do anything for, for selfish purposes, but with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. This This introduction to the story of Jesus, because Paul is about to tell the story of Jesus in a very specific way after these words. This introduction alone is already challenging enough. And it is a version of life, a story of life, that flies in the face of most of the stories of life that we have around us. I mean, honestly... I was tempted to just read these verses and then say, let's stand and sing. I shouldn't have told you that. Now you're going to be hoping I would have done that. Right? This is hard enough. But now Paul's going to say, okay, so in case you're wondering what that looks like, in case you're wondering if it's possible, here we go. And I want you to pay attention to the action words, the verbs that define Jesus' life. So though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the, the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. And when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself further, right? By becoming obedient, not just generally, but obedient to the point of death, 
And not just any kind of death, but a humiliating death, a death on a cross. Look at those verbs. These are the primary actions that make up the story of Jesus' life. How many people in this room want to rush to sign up to say those are going to be the words that define the major actions of my life? I don't see walking on water anywhere on there. I I don't see being able to overcome any challenge just through sheer force of will anywhere on here. I don't see winning at everything he tried anywhere on here. Now, those things are aspects of Jesus' life, but Paul knows that we're so tempted to only focus on those aspects of Jesus' life that he wants to tell a version of the Christ story that will wake us up to the real question of, do we still want to live this way? Think about the people in your life who know you best. If they were asked to describe your behavior... How many people in your life would on their own say, you know, she would never take advantage of a situation just to get ahead? He, he would never. He would never run somebody over just because he could in a meeting or in a conversation. He, he, he would never pull rank on somebody else. She, she would never decide that something's too good for her to do. He, he would never force his agenda on somebody else without some sort of conversation taking place where there was true listening and true sharing of a heart and a mind between two people who may not agree and know going in that that not only do they not agree at the moment, they may not agree when it's over. How much can you honestly say the verbs, the actions that describe Jesus' life accurately describe your way of life? I guess the deeper question would be, do you even want these words to describe your way of life? It's a hard question. Jesus' focus is to step down, to move down, to stoop to serve to do anything he can for anybody else in any way that he can, that's the story of his life. Now God responds to that way of life in a very specific way. Jesus' actions are to humble and to be obedient and, and to take on less important roles according to the, the way the world looks at roles. God's response then is, therefore... God highly honored him. Let's pull the text back up, please. Go back one slide. Thanks. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus' focus, his actions in his life are to be less important, to have less power when it comes to the way people tend to use power in our world, to stoop down, to serve, God's response to that is very specific. Jesus steps down, God reaches into that story and raises Christ up. Now the only way that Christ is willing to live that way, I think, is because Christ the Son 
knows God the Father. And he knows it's not his job to decide how his own life is going to turn out. He knows that God will be responsible for that. And he trusts God enough to focus on his side of the partnership and to give the rest over to God. So, if we're going to focus on the story of Christ, as the Apostle Paul tells us here in Philippians, and so many of his other letters, he says, look, the living example that God gives us in Christ, the living example that Adam and Eve couldn't be and the Israelites couldn't be, the living example that Jesus actually is for us is all about giving our lives away so that we can bless other people's lives. And in a world obsessed with finding any and every way to, to manage to move up the ladder, Jesus willingly, nobody makes Jesus do this, Jesus willingly moves down the ladder. And not just once, but over and over and over and over again until his only hope for a good ending is God's faithfulness. His only hope for a good ending is God intervening to rescue and to save and to restore the story of his life. We've been looking at these these different chapters in, in this overarching story of Scripture, and we've been breaking them up into major chapters. And so uh, I'm going to have us show real quickly a slide that illustrates those, those different chapters. The first we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we're calling creation. The second chapter is conflict, right? There's relationships that are not they're not really something that people are giving themselves fully over to their relationships they're using to get somewhere. And then the last time I preached, we talked about covenant, that God makes this decision to, to partner with this, this group of people to say, surely you can model for people how to live my ideal, but they don't. And so now in chapter 4, we have Christ. And I want you to notice that black dotted line where people are experiencing, to what degree people are experiencing God's ideal for humanity. And you'll see that so far, it's been a pretty significant roller coaster of, of moments where people live out God's ideal and entire stretches where they don't. And yet we get to the gospel story. We get to what we call are the gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we find that the ideal for human beings is lived out in full view of everyone, and it doesn't look the way we might think it would. Oh, sure, there's moments where it looks exactly the way we would expect it to look. But the overarching shape of Jesus' life is a cross. It's a life given for the sake of others. Now, I, I want to point this out to you. This is not new for Jesus. This is the same kind of relationship Jesus had before he ever got here with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They live for each other. They submit to one another. They serve one another. Nobody made Jesus Christ come here. I believe there was a moment of cooperation and conversation and collaboration between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and somebody needed to go, and the Son said, I'll go. I'll go as long as you'll be with me, God. 
and I'll go as long as you'll lead me, Spirit. I'll go. I'll serve. I'll show people a life that is shaped by self-giving love, which is how our lives were always supposed to be shaped. Jesus is this living example. And, and what we have found, if you look at the history of the world, is that even though people might want to pretend that they don't know this, this story exists, the world knows the story of Jesus. And whether you believe in the divinity of Christ or not, everybody that I'm aware of who knows the details of, of the story of Jesus' life itself, just on the face of it, says this was an incredible person. This was somebody who lived an entirely different way than anybody else lives. And then we've got to make a decision. Everybody's got to make a decision. Do I want to live that way or not? Do I believe that God calls me to live that way or not? Now, I think we make a mistake if we take Jesus' life as God's ideal, as some example that we use to make each other feel not good enough. If, if we use the story of Jesus to beat one another up to say, yeah, well, you may, be, you may be decent, but you're not perfect. That's true, but I don't know anyone that likes to be reminded of that. It's true. I don't think the story of Jesus is intended to beat anybody up. I think it was always supposed to be something we fall in love with and we remember deep down in who we are that we have this God-given longing to be like that. And Jesus shows us that it's possible. Oh, it's the hardest thing anybody's ever done. But with God's help, it's possible. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you encounter a version of something, where you get it finally, you think, wow. Okay, so if this is what a sunset could look like, this is amazing. I remember as a young kid walking through the John Muir uh, redwood forest, you know, and there's trees in that forest that are over 1,200 years old. And I remember looking up at one of those redwoods and thinking, now there's a tree. Now some of you may feel that when you look at mesquite trees. I don't know, right? But we all have in our hearts some perfect version of something, right? Where it, it's not, you don't feel judged by the tree. You, you may feel small, next to a redwood that's over 1,200 years old. You may have a sense of kind of where you might be in the grand scheme of things, but there's a part of you that thinks, okay, now this is, this is real. This is true. This is good. Now, we know we're not morally perfect people, and we know that we, we, we need Jesus to live a perfect life in order to die for us, but we also need Jesus to not live a morally perfect life to prove to us how far we have to go. We need Jesus to live that life, a good life, a good way of life, so that we'll be reminded of what it looks like and that there could be a part inside of us that would say, oh, okay, that's what it's supposed to be. This is life. This is how somebody's supposed to treat other people, no matter what. This is how people are supposed to interact. These are, these are examples, these are images of how relationships are supposed to work. I've forgotten, but now, now I see. 
I think sometimes we think God's ideal would be that every single person uh, is morally perfect. But I think that would mean that God would have created the world and us and everything in it with no ability to choose. Right? That, that version of the world where everything's perfect and nothing goes wrong, I mean, if, God, if that's what God set out to do, something, something went wrong somewhere. I, I think God's ideal is less about moral perfection that's, that's produced from lives where people don't have any choices to make. I actually think God's ideal is in a world where things don't always go perfectly you still choose to be good in response to it. When God creates the world, God doesn't look at it and say it's perfect. What does God say? It's good. It's very good. Sometimes I think my frustration with God is I think, well, hey, I'm your person. I'm your son. I'm trying to, I'm trying to live in the example of Jesus, and I'm not doing it perfectly, but I'm doing a whole lot better than some of the other people that I go to church with. And no, I didn't mean that last part at all. Um, <laughs> what good does that do anybody, right, when we think like that? But what if our sense of God's ideal—did Jesus' life go perfect? Did everything that happened to him, was it, was it what you choose to— to have someone have to go through. It didn't go perfect. But his response to it was perfectly good. Time after time after time. It was patient and it was kind and it was understanding. And while Jesus at any point could have taken all the control back, he keeps limiting his response. He measures his response to give people the space to choose to be good again. That's God's ideal, is in an imperfect world where things aren't always exactly what you want them to be, could you choose to be good? Not because you have to, but because you want to. But because you remember that's who, you, who you've wanted to be the whole time. Now, I want to be clear about this. I think that, that God has an expectation that as we draw closer to his heart— that we will draw closer to Jesus' heart, that we will open ourselves up to the heart of the Holy Spirit, and we will change morally. We will. But it'll be because we trust and we love, not because we fear and we're trying to measure up. And that makes all the difference. It's not enough to be thankful for the cross. It's not enough to be impressed by it. You and I have to decide, can we move past just being thankful that it happened to wrestling with, do I want to embrace the cross, not just as the shape of Jesus' life, but, but am I brave enough to embrace the way of the cross as the shape of my life? Again, not because I have to, but because it's the deepest hope and desire that's at the core of who I am, that this is, this is what I want, that God has helped me to want this and to desire this. And look, I, I think that, that while we focus on things like, like what Jesus does that's so impressive and, and he's walking on water and he's healing lame people who can't walk and suddenly they can walk again and he's helping blind people see, I think we, we see all those things and we think, well, I, I know I've tried before to do some of those things and I haven't been able to do those things. And so what of Jesus' life can I imitate? You can imitate humility and obedience and being kind and patient 
when it's difficult. You can make choices to be good even when your life isn't perfect. I was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago looking at different pictures and and I came across a picture of Ed and Evie Greenlee renewing their vows in our chapel. And as a couple, they're fighting a disease that's stealing their memories, the memories they share. So you know what you do when maybe you can't quite remember your first version of your vows? You make them again. Right? You say that, that our relationship, it's not just built on the past. It's built on the present and the future that God is going to give us. And so I promise again to you that I don't have this relationship with you because of what I can get out of it. I have this relationship with you because of, of how I want to give. Because I want to be like Jesus. I'm not perfect yet, but I, I want to be good. I, I want to do those things. You know, and I think about some other things I saw on Facebook this week. You know, stories that people don't tend to tell on themselves because they're afraid that it would be like bragging. But we have at least two teachers of the year in this room right now. We probably have more, Tiffany Corbett and Jenny Oglesby, both of whom were honored for treating other people's children with dignity and respect and helping them become contributing adults in our world. That matters. Right? That's, trust me, I've been around kids like that. You have to be making choices to be humble and patient and kind. Not theoretically, but really every single day. And, and neither of, of those teachers, none of the teachers in this room, I, for the Robinsons, April Brannon survived Reese. I mean, that, that deserves a reward of some kind. Look what it did to her hair. And then there's families in this church family that take children and they don't just educate them or teach them, but they bring them into their homes like the Wyndhams and the Grishams who, who have raised countless people by sharing life with them. We've got the Thomases who are connected to the Ben Ritchie Boys Ranch and all the kids that go through there and are shaped by loving adults who choose to be humble and patient and kind. You know, I know at some level, I guess we'd say that's not superhero stuff, but maybe, it, maybe that's exactly what it is. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know where your life is right now. I don't know what kinds of verbs, what actions are really making up what's going on in your journey of life right now. But I have a feeling that all of us could add some words that belong to the life of Jesus, who would never exploit who would never take advantage, who would never overpower, who would never say, say one thing and mean another. I mean, don't you want that to be your way of life, even though it seems like it might be the hardest way of life in the world? Don't you, don't you really believe deep down that it would be the most meaningful way of life? In Luke, he says that we have to take up our cross daily. I guess what I want you to wrestle with in this coming week is you have an everyday cross, and it may look the same every day, or it may change a little bit from day to day. But how about this? How about the next time you bump up against a cross in your life, 
you don't do everything in your power to get away from it, but you embrace it. I, I don't know what that moment's going to be for you. I know what mine, I, the cross, my everyday cross right now is patience. I'm just an impatient person. Ask anybody in my family. Lauren's entire family is having to suffer through me for four days. I'm impatient. I want things done now. I want them done excellently. And I'd like them to be exactly what I asked for. And I'd like you to do it with a smile. And if you can't do any of those things, I'm going to let you know one way or another. I'm lots of fun to go you know, to a restaurant with. I'm impatient. I'm impatient at restaurants. I'm impatient in the car. I'm impatient when the girls are brushing their teeth or getting ready for bed or getting ready for school. I'm impatient. And it makes me hard to be around. And I keep thinking that, you know, I'd know if my Calvary moment came. Right? I'd know it'd be big and it'd be on a hill and I'd realize I'm going to die on this hill. But what I miss is that I have an everyday cross. And in that moment, when I'm tempted to be impatient with somebody else, and in all honesty, I I do this. I don't always give in to my impatience. I have to stop and say, okay, the story of Jesus is one of humility and being kind and thoughtful. And when things don't go perfectly, you're still good. You're good in response. That's God's ideal for you. So as we go out this week, I want you to open your heart up to seeing those crosses that you're going to be asked to bear for the sake of other people. And instead of us changing the subject or getting out of the room or not listening anymore or labeling somebody so we don't have to listen to them or finding a way that we can win at all costs, instead of giving in to those fallen motivations and desires that we could remember once again that there is one way that leads to life and it is the life Jesus leaves for us. Jesus' model is not to make you feel judged. It's a map. This is what your life could be. If you just... If you just try, and if you'd partner with God, and if you'd keep your eyes open for the opportunities to be a little less like you and a little more like him. And I promise you, if that is how you face every single day, one day you're going to wake up and you'll be an entirely new person. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, we're going to have a few shepherding couples outside these double doors. They're there to pray with you, to talk with you, to be community for you. And so if you came this morning with any concerns at all that you'd like to pray with or talk with a Christian couple about, if you want to know more about our church, if you want to know more about what it means to commit to following Jesus and in the way of Jesus, they want to visit with you and talk with you and pray with you. So go to them as together we stand and sing.